gp.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself or prove to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed handling accurately the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you're a first time listener for the next hour, we'll be taking questions that you may have concerning God's word as you've been opening it and studying it. Maybe there's an issue of interpretation. You're not sure what does this text mean or how does it apply today? Or maybe there's a particular challenge as it relates to your home, your ministry, your life, and you're looking for biblical counsel. Well, if we can help by the grace of God, we will do our best. All you need to do is pick up the phone. The local number is 843-525-1859. We have a growing number of people who also listen through the internet every week. And the internet phone number, if you want to call us uh, long distance, we have a toll-free number at 877 877- WAGP 980. When you call, whatever line you use, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question. We also receive questions each week uh, through the email, and people email us here directly into the studio. And if you would like to do that, the email address is TBL for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. Rick, as always, it's great to be here for another Bible line. Indeed it is, Pastor, and a number of uh, emails have already come in. Uh, So let's go to them first. Um, And uh, we've got John from Foster, Rhode Island, who asks, Are the two witnesses in Revelation 11 meant to be taken literally or metaphorically? Uh, I recently heard a sermon where they were interpreted metaphorically or figuratively, and it seemed a bit of a stretch to make it fit. I am not an expert in Revelation, so I don't want to assume I'm right. Can you please shed some light on the matter? Well, you know, one of my professors at Dallas Seminary, Dr. Dwight Pentecost, probably one of the greatest uh, uh, pastors, teachers on the subject of eschatology and times used to always tell us if the plain sense makes good sense, don't seek any other sense. Otherwise, it becomes nonsense. So when you read the, the book of Revelation, the best way to interpret it is just simply straightforward. Unless there is a symbol that's being used, uh, you take it literally. Uh, Certainly there are symbols in the book of Revelation. We discussed this a little bit last week with a a slightly different question, but related. Uh, In Revelation 1, uh, the Lord uh, appears to the apostle John, and and John describes what he sees and what he hears. And he says, I saw seven golden lampstands. And and he goes on to say that um, he saw Christ holding seven stars and then, of course, the, uh, the symbolism here is actually interpreted for us. We're told a few verses later here in verse 20 of chapter 1, the seven stars are the angels 
of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And so many times God will interpret the symbol for us either in the book of Revelation itself or he will interpret it in other books. And so key to understanding the book of Revelation is understanding the Old Testament book of Daniel because these two books intersect with one another. But when you hear people taking something that is just plain and straightforward and allegorizing it or turning into a symbol like the two witnesses in the Revelation and saying that these were not real persons, usually there is something that is undergirding that interpretation. So when you hear the book of Revelation taught, some take a non-literal approach, the allegorical approach, and it was St. Augustine who was the first to do this. Why did he do that? Because St. Augustine came up with the bright idea, which was a bad idea, that God was done with the people of Israel and that the body of Christ had become the new Israel. And he said some very embarrassing things about Jewish people and about um, you know how he viewed them and if you've ever been to the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., or the counterpart in Israel, uh, those, some of those things that he said are, are printed up there in the walls, and it's extremely embarrassing to us as Christians. Uh, that position was later adopted by the Roman Catholic Church, and then some of the people who came out of Catholicism, like Luther and Calvin, adopted a similar mindset where the church, the body of Christ, had become the new Israel. So when they come to the book of Revelation that deals so much with the Hebrew people and so much with real geographical places like Jerusalem, they don't know what to do with it. Uh, Interestingly, John Calvin wrote a commentary on every book of the Bible except the book of Revelation because he didn't know what to do with it. So some will end up interpreting it, but everything is a symbol. It's the allegorical approach. Um, There's huge problems with that. You can make the Bible mean whatever you want it to mean. Uh, Some have taken what's called the preterist approach, where they basically say that the book of Revelation was all fulfilled in the early church. The great tribulation period has already happened. Uh, The Antichrist he was already here. Some say it was Nero and, you know, different suggestions are given. They're not even consistent on how they historically approach uh, revelation from events in the past. And, uh, but again, uh, they have to really spiritualize a lot of passages of scripture. Even in the address to the seven churches that Christ makes, he, he notes that there's coming a time of tribulation that will come upon the whole earth. And of course, Revelation 4 through 19 describes that tribulation. And they are events that are so catastrophic that there is no parallel anywhere in human history. So the preterist approach, again, is a kind of an escape to deal with the fact that God has not abandoned the Jewish people. Some have taken what's called the historical approach where they say, well, the book of Revelation pictures different time frames in church history. Now, I think it is interesting when you look at the seven churches in chapters two and three, that while they are real literal churches that exist in the, in the first century, and they are problems that uh, they're facing in the first century, uh, they are still nonetheless um, more than just seven literal churches. When you look at each of those churches, they do seem to uh, represent different time frames, but to take the whole book of Revelation 
and to say that um, the whole book uh, approaches different time frames. Again, you have to end up spiritualizing it. And people who have taken this approach to the Revelation, in their generation, they've interpreted it differently. The futuristic approach, uh, where chapters 4 through 22 are yet in the future, I think is the simplest way to approach the Revelation. And I think we have a basis for doing that. And that all the prophecy for the first coming of Jesus Christ was literally fulfilled. And for him to fulfill the prophecies for the second coming in a different way, well, it just doesn't jive with what God has done in the past. And nor does the allegorical or the preterist approach or the historical approach to Revelation, where in each of those modes you end up symbolizing and allegorizing the Scripture You don't have any precedent for that in the way the New Testament writers interface with the Old Testament. They just simply literally interpret it. So Revelation 11 speaks of two witnesses who are going to come here to earth. Some believe that they are Moses and Elijah brought back. They may very well be because their ministries mimic uh, the ministries of Elijah and Moses In either case, they are real people that God is going to use during the time of Jacob's trouble, and their witness is going to be used of God to get the the attention of millions of people, some whose fate will be sealed in that they will reject their message, and others who will respond and actually come to faith in the Lord Jesus during that time. Anyway, I appreciate that question. It's a great question, and now I think we have some live callers waiting, so let's go to the first one. Indeed. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Pastor Brogy. Thank you for taking my call. Yes. I was speaking to someone yesterday, and they uh, they told me that the other morning, they before going to church, they were watching this uh, pastor on TV, and this particular pastor was bashing Tim LaHaye and others for their pre-trib uh, positions. Uh, this particular pastor believes in uh, post-trib, and his argument was is if Jesus suffered, then why would we expect to you know, go unharmed or untouched? Uh, I spoke to this person, told him why you know, I believe in pre-trib, but I couldn't remember the exact uh, scripture verses in your position, because I think you mentioned one time that something to the effect of, uh, well, I I can't remember it, but uh, I was just wondering if you could go over that real quick on why your position is pre-trib and maybe some scripture verses that we could look to. Well, it's a a good question, and the pastor, who I have no idea who you're referring to, so I don't have a hidden agenda here. But let me just say that um, sometimes a straw man is uh, brought up saying that people who hold to a pre-tribulational, pre-millennial viewpoint, that they don't believe the church will suffer. And no one historically has ever taught that. Uh, People who hold to a pre-tribulational picture of the church being caught up before the tribulation. There are basically, in the premillennial approach, three uh, viewpoints that have been held in the history of the church. Some have argued that God's people will be caught up before the Great Tribulation. And we have people, even during the 15 and 1600s, who took that approach. Some would say, well, this is just something new. A fellow by the name of Darby dreamed it up. And that's not true. Uh, there are people all the way back 
to the 15 and 1600s in terms of written church history records who held to a pre-tribulational approach. There's the mid-tribulation that says in the middle of the great tribulation, God's people will be caught up. And then there's the post-tribulational view that says the church will go through the seven-year tribulation. Um, And again, uh, those who hold to a pre-tribulational view are not doing so on the basis that, well, God just doesn't want us to suffer because God's people suffer during the time of the great tribulation. And God's people have suffered and have been persecuted throughout the history of the church. My wife and I have been praying for these dear saints who are in North Korea, 33 missionaries who the president of North Korea has, is planning to execute. And he doesn't care. He's, you know, thoughtless. He's godless. He's a, a butcher. And he's already taken out some people, clearly his uncle. There's also another key leader that is all of a sudden missing and no one has seen him in any public meetings. And and I don't doubt that when he says he's going to have these 33 missionaries who are from South Korea, who've been planting churches, they've planted over 500 churches in North Korea that he plans to have them executed. I, I don't think it's an idle threat. He's a butcher. And um, God's people throughout the time of human history have been killed. And in God's people during the time of the Great Tribulation will suffer. Uh, most of the people who do not embrace Antichrist are beheaded. And you see them pictured in the Revelation uh, in heaven saying, God, how much longer will you allow this to go on, the persecution of your people? And they're asking, you know, for understanding over God's time frame as in terms of what he is doing. Um, there's no single verse in the Bible that teaches a pre-tribulational approach. Uh, there are many verses when put together teach that. It's kind of like the doctrine of the Trinity. There's not a single verse that totally uh, encapsulates the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. But when you systematically put together a number of passages in the Word of God, then it becomes very clear that the Bible teaches that there is one God who exists in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. Now, I've taught a course that is available through our Institute of Biblical Studies, which if someone listening is interested in in, uh, participating in, they can go to searchthescriptures.org. In uh, one of the courses is called eschatology. Eschatos is the Greek word for last things. And so it's a study of the last times, the end of time and how it will unfold. And it, there's like 50 sessions to it. So it's very, very in-depth. In one of the uh, sessions, I deal with 10 reasons why I believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. And I think I spend two sessions going through those 10 reasons. And each session is about 50 minutes long. So let me, uh, without going into those and not going further in the Bible line, let me just give you one reason. For instance, if the church goes through the great tribulation period, if indeed God's people go through the great tribulation period, and at the end of the seven-year period, the visible return of Christ happens to the earth, that means then we are all caught up, all the believers— are caught up to meet the Lord Jesus in the air. We know clearly from Revelation 24 and 25 that all the unbelievers are separated. They are, in essence, um, not invited into God's kingdom. So if we all go up at the end of the seven-year period, 
It means we're caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And then we do a U-turn and we come back to the earth to rule and reign with him for a thousand years. And if we are in our resurrected bodies, and if in our resurrected bodies, our salvation is complete as the Bible teaches, if we cannot sin uh, as the Bible teaches in a resurrected body, then who at the end of the thousand year period, who at the end of the thousand year period rebels against God's Messiah who's ruling and reigning on the earth if no one can sin? And yet clearly there is a rebellion that takes place as Revelation 20 affirms. Again, you know, there are people who just say, well, there will not be a literal thousand year reign of Christ upon the earth. Well, the idea of the fact that God has a kingdom for Israel is clearly taught in the Old Testament. And that was never fulfilled. And of course, when the Lord Jesus came the first time, many of the Jewish people were looking for that kingdom. And what they did not understand is that the coming of Messiah is in two programs. The first program, he comes as a suffering servant. And the second program, he comes as a ruling, reigning Lord. And many of the Jewish people only wanted a Messiah who would crush Rome. They didn't want one who was going to die on a cross and suffer especially if you were self-righteous and didn't see your need for a savior. And so they understood, though, that there was a coming kingdom. And even the apostles there on the Mount of Olives at the ascension of Christ, when the Lord Jesus is speaking about uh, their waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit, that precipitates a question in their thinking And it's a good question because in the Old Testament, when you read about the kingdom of Messiah upon the earth, something that Jesus taught us to pray for and what we traditionally call the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done, where? On earth as it is in heaven. That's a literal prayer for the coming of God's kingdom uh, when he will rule and reign. And so in Acts 1 at the ascension, when he's speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God and gathering them together, not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father promised, and that John baptized with water, but you're going to be baptized by the Holy Spirit not many days from now. When he brings this up, that causes them to ask the question, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? It's an important question, and again, what what causes them to ask that question is that in the Old Testament, the kingdom of Messiah on the earth is associated with a great movement of God's Spirit upon people. And so they think, well, maybe this is when it's going to unfold. And of course, Jesus does not say, well, there is no kingdom. If there was ever a time for the Lord Jesus to say, well, there is no literal kingdom where I'm going to come back and rule and reign upon the earth. And that time frame is given in the Revelation as being a thousand years long. He could have personally refuted it at this point, but he doesn't. He just says, listen, it's not for you to know the times or the epics which the Father has fixed by his own authority. All you need to be concerned about is to wait, not to go out and try to win the first soul to Christ until God the Holy Spirit comes to dwell you, which was the promise of the new covenant as it's spelled out in both Jeremiah and Ezekiel. So I say all that to say that if you believe that God has a literal kingdom for Israel, which your amillennialists 
you will find in a lot of, say, our Presbyterian brothers and Roman Catholics and so forth, because they all teach in different ways that the church and Catholicism, it's the institutionalized church. In evangelicalism, it's those who are truly converted, but the principle's the same. They argue that the church has taken the place of Israel, that we are the new Israel, and that God has no future plan for the Jewish people. There are many popular writers today who hold this position, like, say, John Piper. This is his viewpoint. And I love him, and I'm glad he has the gospel, and he preaches the gospel, but I differ with him on how he views, say, Israel. And you know, and so when they when they interpret these passages that deal with the kingdom, they have to spiritualize them. And again, that's what Calvin did, coming back to our first question today concerning the book of Revelation. But let's say the church is caught up at the beginning of the great tribulation period, and we're brought up in the air in our resurrected bodies. And during that seven-year period, we are at the judgment seat of Christ, where God evaluates our works somewhere in that time frame. And and so we come back to rule and reign. And our responsibility in the coming kingdom is, again, partially based on uh, how faithful we have been in this life and serving the Lord Jesus. So Jesus can say, well, some will be over 10 cities and some over five and some over one, based on their faithfulness to the Lord. And, um, and so we enter the millennial reign in our resurrected bodies. And let's say those who survive the tribulation, because not everyone is killed. Uh, Jesus said no one would survive had that those days not been cut short. The implication is, is that some will survive. And so a verse that Hal Lindsey grossly took out of context, no one in the pre-tribulational viewpoint held to what Hal Lindsey did taught from Matthew 24, one will be taken, one will be left. That's a verse that is not in reference to the rapture, but the second coming, when Jesus literally comes back to the earth. Some will be carried away in judgment. Others will be left who survived the tribulation, who did not take the mark of the beast, who persevered, showing that their conversion was real, and they will enter the millennium in their natural bodies. During that thousand-year reign, the curse will be lifted off of creation, People will live for long periods of time, like before the time of the great flood. They'll have children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and so forth. And their children will have to make a decision with Jesus ruling and reigning on the earth, whether or not he will be their personal savior. And if they do not embrace him, then they will be lost. And so during the thousand years, the revelation tells us the devil has been bound for a thousand years. And at the end, he's loosed and he will tempt the nations. Who will he tempt if we're all in resurrected bodies? There is no one to tempt. But if there are people who don't go up in the rapture prior to the tribulation, who find Christ during the great tribulation, who enter in their natural bodies into the millennial reign, who carry on the normal functions of marriage and have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, then you have a scenario where indeed people can rebel against God's Messiah. Some would say, well, why would they rebel knowing that Jesus is Lord is ruling and reigning on the earth? It shows how sinful and how fallen man really is. It will be an example to us of just how depraved we are by nature. Even with the devil bound and no one to tempt people will make decisions that will not coincide with embracing Jesus as Lord. So only the pre-tribulational rapture 
fits that literal interpretation of Scripture. And that's why some just throw out the millennium altogether. Well, if that won't work. We'll just make no millennium. Then they have to throw out chapters and chapters of Old Testament texts that speak to this truth concerning the people of Israel. So that's one of 10 reasons I give in that course on eschatology on why I believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. Let's go to the next question. All right. Uh, Betty from Hilton Head Island writes, uh, what do you think of the new book by Sarah Young called Jesus Calling? I don't like it at all. I think it's terrible. It's atrocious. Um, Now, Sarah Young would say that she affirms in the infallibility of the scripture. And I'm glad she does. But she uses a methodology of journaling that is antithetical to what you find in the New Testament in terms of how a saint of God is to meet the living Lord. And so she talks about how, you know, we're to listen to God and, and in her little book, which is again, atrocious. And I, I, it just saddens me. I got as far as the, the introduction and I felt like throwing up. Uh, I was just so disgusted with the book. Um, in fact, I wrote a review on it, which you can find at searchthescriptures.org. And if you click on the top of the webpage on blogs, you will find a review on the book that I wrote. But she basically says that, you know, God speaks to you. And she writes throughout her book all these I statements where she puts in God's mouth words And it's a very dangerous approach. It basically leaves an open canon of Scripture where God is still speaking. Listen, God can speak to our hearts, but he doesn't speak to our hearts with new revelation. The revelation, the canon of Scripture is closed. He might take a passage of Scripture and illuminate it to your heart. You know, sometimes Christians sloppily say, well, I had a revelation. You didn't have a revelation. God isn't giving revelation. He may have given you an illumination over something he has written, but he's not giving you a revelation. And this is a very dangerous approach. You see Beth Moore and others doing it, and that's why we don't have Beth Moore Bible studies. Some of her theology just stinks. It's awful. But, you know, she's making Lifeway books a ton, a ton of money, and that's all that, you know, Southern Baptists in their, are interested in in that bookstore change. And yet you've got Southern Baptist leaders who will not permit their Bible studies uh, of Beth Moore in their churches. When Adrian Rogers was alive, he would not have a Beth Moore Bible study in his church. Uh, you got an Alistair Begg who will not have a Beth Moore Bible study in his church. Why not? Because he knows she's shaky in terms of her approach to the Word of God. And it's so sad because you've got women out there who are hungry for God's truth, and she's approaching it, but she's not doing it in a healthy way. And then Sarah Young, you know, what she's really questioning, Sarah Young, is the sufficiency of Scripture. It was James Montgomery Boyce, who is the great pastor of a Presbyterian church up in um, Pennsylvania, 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, who interestingly, unlike a lot of Presbyterians, believed that God had a future for Israel. He was a dispensationalist, meaning he made a distinction between Israel and the church. But Boyce said just before he died, and he's in heaven now and enjoying his reward and all the faithful years that he taught and preached the word of God. He said in the end of time, he said, 
in evangelicalism, and I think he hit the nail right on the head, the issue that we will be facing is not whether the Bible is inspired or inerrant, because that's a given for any true evangelical Christian. We don't question the authority and the infallibility of the Scripture. And if someone does, then they shouldn't call themselves a born-again Christian. Because when you have a regenerated mind and you are given the mind of Christ and the Spirit of God comes to dwell within you, then unlike a natural man who does not understand the things of the Spirit of God, the born-again believer understands that this is God's infallible, inerrant word. But Boyce argued that in the end of time, the debate will be over the sufficiency of Scripture, not over the authority of Scripture, but the sufficiency of Scripture. Is the Scripture sufficient to be able to speak to us, to grow us, to convert us, to sanctify us? And I would say yes. And the methodology that she uses that is so dangerous, that is no different in in practice than what most of the cults have done in the history of the church, where there's some new vision, some new dream, some new book that God gave them. She is basically using the same methodology, but she baptizes it in the Bible. And it's very, very dangerous very dangerous. Uh, I'll get off my soapbox and I'll just let you go to searchthescriptures.org and read my review of the book. And though I read the whole thing, I, I just review her statements in the introduction, which basically capsulize what she's trying to accomplish in the book. And I interact with some of her own words. I'm not saying things that people said about Sarah Young. I'm saying what Sarah Young thinks. And I quote her directly, and then we do some biblical analysis. And for people that go to that website, searchthescriptures.org, and click on the blogs tab, uh, it's about the fifth or sixth uh, entry down. It was about a year and a half or so ago that you uh, actually listed that when the book first came out. All right, 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net. as has Darina from Augusta, Georgia. She writes, according to John MacArthur and others, there are several reasons why they believe in the doctrine of limited atonement. Two of these are, one, unlimited atonement makes redemption partially dependent on sinners who must believe in order to be saved which with, would make Christ's sacrifice incomplete. And two, if Jesus paid the penalty for sins, then if a person goes to hell, they would have paid twice for their sins, which would make God unjust. I still do believe in unlimited atonement. It makes sense to me that even though Christ died and paid the penalty for the sins of everyone, God still gives us free will to accept or reject salvation, which is a demonstration of God's love for us. Hearing Dr. MacArthur's messages the past few weeks was very confusing. I respect him as a brother in Christ, but I don't understand limited atonement. Would you please provide some clarification? I don't understand it either, and I don't agree with it. And he didn't for the first four decades in his ministry. And it's only been in the last five or six years that he's adopted the position of a limited atonement, a particular atonement. And the doctrine of particular atonement says that Jesus didn't die for all. He only died for a select few, namely the elect. And the argument is, is that if Jesus died and paid and shed his blood for people who would never receive him, that his blood was wasted. And as you argue, and it's one of the arguments that limited redemptionists often use, is that the sin then is, quote unquote, paid for twice. Um 
Right now, this is a challenge for John MacArthur because he's a member of IFCA, which is the International um, um, Fellowship of Fundamental Churches in America. And and it's not fundamental Baptist, but just fundamental in the historical view of the word where someone embraces certain non-negotiables. And one of the things in their doctrinal statement is that they hold to an unlimited atonement. And that's always been true in the history of the church. The idea that Jesus did not die for all, but just for the elect, has always been a minority view. Uh, The first record we can even find in the history of the church of someone embracing this is uh, during the time of the Reformation. My son, uh, Jeremy, wrote a paper once at Liberty University, and the basic theme of the paper is why John Calvin didn't believe in a limited atonement. I thought he did an excellent job in documenting from Calvin's own commentaries that he did not embrace an unlimited atonement. If you want to understand this issue, you might want to go to my series on Romans, which we've been in the book of Romans for the last couple of years. In the uh, latter half of Romans 5, um, I deal with this whole issue. Did Jesus die for all? And I think the clear answer is yes. But there are Christians who don't believe that. They're brothers in Christ, and I'm thankful they have the gospel, and they're preaching the gospel. And, and you know, most of what John MacArthur teaches, I, I agree with. But, you know, there are some things that I've never agreed with. Um, you know, I, I've never agreed with what he used to teach concerning the sonship of Christ. He has now uh, modified his position on that. Historically, Christians have always affirmed the eternal sonship of Christ. Um, he taught against that for a long time and about, I don't know, 10 years ago, changed his position and came in line with the historical view of the church. So if you have an old commentary on Hebrews, he denies the eternal sonship. If you have a newer commentary, he reaffirms it and it was updated and, and reprinted. Now, I think he's wrong on this doctrine of limited atonement. And you can usually hear these people, uh, the way they use their terminology, uh, whether they hold to a limited atonement. A lot of pastors just won't come right out and say, well, I don't believe Jesus died for all. They're afraid it's going to create too much heartache and stir in their church, maybe create a division. And, um, and, and so they'll use terminology, well, God loves those who will believe and repent. What are they saying when they're, they're making such a statement? They're not saying that Jesus loves all. They don't believe you can walk up to everyone or anyone on the street and say, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. They don't believe you can do that because they believe that God only loves the elect. Well, I believe he loves the whole world and the world means world there and it doesn't mean the world of the elect. And to come to the doctrine of limited atonement, you've got to be educated in that position. I go to other parts of the world and um, people have no idea what you're speaking about when they hear these things that are being taught in different parts of the world, they say, how do they get that? That's just the simple, plain reading of scriptures that Jesus died for all. And his death not only becomes the basis of our salvation, it also becomes the basis of an unbeliever's condemnation. 
Again, if you want to study this in detail, listen to my Romans 5 sermon, or I also taught a course on soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, also offered through the Institute of Biblical Studies. And in that course, I go through the five points of Calvinism, and I deal with the doctrine of limited atonement, the verses that they use, many verses that are not speaking to the extent of the atonement, but the intent of the atonement. And there's a big difference. When Jesus said, I lay down my life for my sheep, he's not talking about the extent, he's talking about the intent, that his death would not be wasted, that there would be people who would actually become his sheep who would believe. But I go through that in that course, which maybe someone listening today who wants to go further, might, that might be helpful to you. Appreciate the question. Let's go to the next one. All right. We have a live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, guys. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Uh, Pastor, give you the opportunity to basically uh, teach your basics class here between the last call and, and this question. Uh, I just wondered if you could discuss um, discuss the question that gets posed. I hear a lot uh, from non-believers, and that is, how can you condemn uh, people who have never heard the gospel? You mean to tell me that millions of people who are living in parts of the world that have never heard the gospel are condemned to hell? It's a great question, and it's like a, a critical question. And, and we do, as you mentioned, in our course, the Discovery class, which is really a 45-week class on the basics of Christianity. And one section of that is the 10 most commonly asked questions uh, concerning Christianity. And I'm starting to write those out in detail for people to be able to use. One has been done recently, and it is now available, How to Prove the Bible is True, in in book form, and people can get it on Amazon. Um, We sell it at costs. You know, when you print through Amazon, you can make a profit on a book if you want, and I'm not interested in making profit off of the Word of God. My, My whole intent is for people to grow in Christ, to find Christ, and so it's very, very reasonable. The markup in books is just incredible. Anyway, um, and, I, and um, I hope to finish the one on what about people who have never heard the plan of salvation. There's really two close, closely related questions, those who have never heard and those who can't hear, and there are different questions. Those who can't hear would be those who are um, physically, mentally incapable of being able to hear the gospel, like a baby that was aborted, a baby that was miscarried, someone with severe forms of retardation, or little children before they're able to embrace and understand basic concepts. How does God deal with them? That's a different question concerning, um, you know, salvation from the one that you're asking. What about people who've never even heard the name of Jesus? Does it seem unfair and unjust that God would send someone to hell for having never believed in a Savior in whom he's never heard. And really, if you think about the question, it, um, it, it, it shakes the foundations of every realm of theology, uh, whether it's the doctrine of the church, ecclesiology. What is the role of the church today? Is it really to be a witness to the whole world? Should we be involved in world missions? I mean, if, if people have to hear the gospel to be saved, okay, we should. But if they don't, and God judges them on a different basis, then why try so hard? And why be so passionate about it? And you could walk through every realm of theology, and it, 
in this question enters into it. And I hope to be able to spell that out in the, the little write-up that I'm, that I'm begun to work on. But basically, here's how I would answer it very quickly. Um, it is unjust for God to send someone to hell for having never heard a Savior, uh, having never heard about the Lord Jesus. That would be unjust, but God doesn't send someone to hell for that reason. So the Bible teaches that all men have a uh, revelation of sorts from God in two forms. Revelation comes in both general revelation and specific revelation. Revelation is what God reveals about himself. And God gives revelation to all people in a couple of different forms. What we would call general revelation and what we would call specific revelation. General revelation would be seen in things like creation and conscience and God's care for people. Uh, The creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature are clearly seen through the things that he has made so that men are without excuse. No one can say I'm an atheist because biblically speaking, there are no atheists. Every man knows there is a God because God's fingerprints are all over his creation. They know that not just through the creation itself, but the conscience within Um, when Gentiles, Paul argues in Romans 2.15, don't have the law, instinctively do the things of the law, he says they show that the law of God has been written in their hearts so that their conscience either defends them or accuses them. Gentiles who didn't have a Bible instinctively knew the difference between what was right and what was wrong, such that when they did what was right, their conscience affirmed them And when they did what was wrong, their conscience accused them. Who are they pleasing or displeasing? The God who created them, the God who made them in his own image. And God's law is a reflection of his character. And so God wrote his law into man's hearts. So one of my missionary friends who went to work in Papua New Guinea to one particular group of people called the Arumba. And when he got there, I mean, these people are in loincloths and spears. I mean, these are like real hardcore natives. Like we, you know, think of missionaries encountering a few hundred years ago. And yet within that community of people, uh, they had certain standards. It was wrong to take something from your neighbor that was not yours. Thou shalt not steal. It was wrong to take another man's wife, thou shalt not commit adultery. It was wrong to take another man's life, thou shalt not murder. How did they know that? They had never even seen a Bible, much less heard about Jesus, because the law of God was written to their hearts. We also see God's general revelation in his care for people. And so Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount reminds us that God causes the Son Uh, to shine on the righteous and the unrighteous and the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. That's God's care over his creation. So God has revealed himself in creation and conscience and his care. And if a man says, okay, I, I know there's a God. I see him in the creation. I see him in his watch care over society. I feel him in my conscience. Um, I want to know this God. The biblical principle is that light responded brings forth more light. And so the opposite is true. If a man says, okay, I know there's a God, but I don't care there's a God. I want to do my own thing. Paul goes on in Romans 1 and he says, well, professing to be wise, he said they're actually fools because they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God that's seen in the creation around them. And they end up worshiping images and men and four-footed animals instead of God the creator. 
And so God gave them over to a darkened understanding. So, you know, your liberal theologians of our day would say that when missionaries go into some culture and, of course, uh, in liberal Protestantism, uh, missionaries are just supposed to plant trees and feed the poor, but they're not to uh, give a message of salvation. We're to be respectful of other religions of the world because in liberal theology, they're all the same. And so some guy worshiping at a totem pole, uh, they would say, well, that's just the way he worships his God. And if he wants to call that piece of wood God, then we shouldn't interfere with that. Or some might just say, well, okay, maybe his uh, worship needs to be redirected a little bit and fixed up, but he's seeking God and, and we need to be respectful of that. Well, God would say just the opposite. No, that's a man in rebellion against God. He has taken what he has known to be true, and he's exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And so God would say that's a man who's in rebellion. Now, the Lord Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount told us that there is a time to withhold the gospel. He told us not to cast our pearl before swine. So there is a time when you will encounter an unbeliever when there is such resistance and antagonism towards the things of God, you just withhold the gospel pearl. Well, God practices what he preaches. Some people never hear the plan of salvation for the simple reason they don't want to hear the plan of salvation. They're living in rebellion against God. And listen, if a man won't respond to the most general of all revelation, what makes us think that he'll respond to specific revelation? He won't. And so God practices what he preaches. But if a man says, I know there's a God, I see him in creation, I feel him in conscience, I want to know this God, light responded to brings forth more light. And so you see an example in Acts the 10th chapter of a man by the name of Cornelius or Cornelius, more technically, phonetically true, but in America we call him Cornelius, but Cornelius nonetheless, knew there was a God. He responded to what he knew. He prayed, he gave alms, and God uh, said, look, I see the fact that you care about the poor, and I've even heard your prayers. You know, sometimes we say God doesn't hear the prayer of a lost person. That's not true. God heard the prayer of Cornelius, and he was still lost. Um, Now, God doesn't obligate to hear the prayer of a lost person. And all the promises in the word of God in reference to prayer are given to those who are in a right relationship with him. And actually all the statements in the word of God in terms of God not hearing prayer is in reference to his people um, and their rebellion and their unrepented sin and God closing their ears to the prayer of a believer. But nonetheless, Cornelius responded to what he had, and God moved heaven and earth. And he sent an angel and told him to go to such and such a place. And, you know, I think about some friends who were showing the Jesus film two decades ago in in India. And there were people who said they had a dream at night and that they needed to go to this place. And they walked for three days. Now, God in the dream didn't give them the gospel. God doesn't do that. Uh, He has chosen to preach the gospel through human agents. And so there's no examples anywhere in Scripture of either 
you know, God giving the gospel, the plan of salvation in a dream or in a vision, people still need to hear the gospel through a human agent, whether that human agent wrote it in a book or whether they are verbally sharing the plan of salvation. But these people in India had a dream to go to such and such a place and they walked three days and they got there and they were hungry. And where'd you come from? Well, we had this dream and we were supposed to come here and they saw the Jesus film and they were wondrously converted. God has a way of orchestrating circumstances to bring the gospel to people who are open. And if God has to parachute a missionary down into some tribal region because there's a man there who says, I want to know God, and God wants to give him the gospel, God's big enough to do whatever it takes. So God doesn't send someone to hell for having never believed in a Savior and in whom he's never even heard. God sends him to hell for having suppressed the revelation that he's been given in his creation and through the conscience that God put in a man's bosom. Um, Great question. Let's go to the next one. All right. We have another live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Rick. This is Anthony. How are you? Hey, Anthony. Good to hear your voice today. Thanks for calling. Yes, Dr. Brogy, I appreciate your time and studying the Word, and I appreciate you answering our questions. And uh, you do a good job answering the question. Rick does, too. Well, thank you for your encouragement. (laughs) How can we help? (laughs) Okay, my question. I know that God is the same today, yesterday, forevermore. I know that His Word is the same. I know that God, God, He never changes. And I say that since I was listening on the radio station yesterday, I think it was, and there had some folks talking about how we should work on our job, that we should work on our jobs as unto the Lord. And I agree. I agree. And But certain passages, I know God's Word doesn't change. God doesn't change. Back in the time of slavery, it wasn't a job. Am I right? Correct. That's it right. It, it, was in, it, it, was in, it was induced, at least in America, yes. It, it, was, it was just slavery. Right. And it was awful. And I've heard that some people try to apply the scriptures of how we work on our job is unto the Lord in this situation. Now, there are times, even though slavery is no longer, but racism still exists. Right. It's not just racism with white folks against black folks. But you got racism, I believe, in every ethnic group there is. Now, racism is still here when it comes to jobs and positions on jobs. How can uh, people apply certain scriptures from the Bible in reference to slavery and how they should have acted working not on a job, versus now. We use that. Now, I know God's words never, his word never changed, but the application back then cannot be the same as it is now, even though we still have racism when it comes to jobs. What kind of application could you use with Scripture, with slavery versus now, racism? when it comes to job, if you can understand my question. Well, I can, and, and, and it's a good question. And this is why it's always important to approach the Scriptures and their historical setting. And when we understand what the different commands meant 
to the original audience, then we can make proper applications. So like slavery in Israel that you read about in the Old Testament was different from slavery, say, in Rome, which was different from slavery in America. Um, So, for instance, you could have an indentured servant in Israel who, because he uh, had owed someone a huge sum of money and couldn't pay it back, where he chose to sell himself for a period of time. It couldn't be longer than seven years, but he chose to sell himself to someone to pay off his debt. And of course, every seven years, all debts were canceled. And even sometimes at the end of seven years, a slave could say to his master, hey, listen, I love you so much. I know I'm free now to go, but I want to continue to serve you. And so he would take him to the doorpost of his house and he would use an awl and he'd make a mark in his ear. And uh, that person said, I want to enter into loving slavery. And of course, the, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Bible was written in Hebrew for the most part in the Old Testament, uh, it's the word doulos. And that's the word that's used in the New Testament that is descriptive of the kind of slavery we have towards Christ, that we have offered ourselves to him, a loving master, and said we are slaves of the Lord Jesus. Uh, when Rome conquered a people, instead of imprisoning them all, Uh, They were slaves, and uh, there was a way, too, in which slaves could be free. Paul deals with that in the book of Philemon, but sometimes you would have Christians who had slaves. So you're living in Rome, and they conquer a people, and they say, well, Anthony, here's three people, and uh, they are now under your care and your responsibility. And so what you had in the early church is you could have a Christian who was born again, who owned some slaves and was responsible for those slaves. And Paul, of course, says, listen, if you're in that situation, you don't mistreat the slave just because you're their master. You deal with them compassionately, knowing that uh, you give an account someday to the Lord. And if slaves are in the situation, well, my master is born again, so I guess I can abuse the relationship. He says, no. Uh, that's not what you do. Now, some of these passages, and even in American history, were abused uh, by some. There were other evangelicals who said, no, this is a great evil. And what really overthrew slavery in America and in the United Kingdom was evangelicalism. It was Bible-believing Christianity who brought people back to the scriptures and what they meant in their historical context. But even here, you know, sometimes people say, well, it doesn't say, we don't say slaves be obedient to those who are masters. We'd say employees be obedient to your employers. Okay, well, that's a legitimate application, but that's not what that text is saying. Let's just say for the sake of an argument, you have an employee who doesn't like the president of his company and he wants to go on strike. Is it wrong to go on strike? Is it wrong to have a union to uh, defend the rights of workers? So, you know, you can't make a direct parallel. So you have to go back to their original historical context and say, well, what application can I make? What timeless principles are there for me as a believer today who's seeking to obey and follow the Holy Scripture? We could spend a lot more time on that, but we're out of time. Unfortunately, a lot of questions we didn't even get to today. But there's always another Tuesday if the Lord doesn't come back and he allows us to be here. 
And uh, we're glad, though, you could join us for this hour of the Bible Line. You can go online. The Bible Lines are posted. The questions are listed that are answered. And so people can listen to the answers later on if that's helpful to them. Listen, I hope you have a great day. May the Lord bless you as you walk with Jesus Christ.